Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book, written within and on the backside, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven, nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much, because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not, behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. As we make our turn into Revelation chapter 5, and catch a glimpse of the vision with John of the book in the right hand of God, sitting upon uh, his throne, we come finally to the proper matter of Revelation or its particular interest and burden. You will remember that this scroll represents God's special providence to his church. But immediately there is a problem. The book is sealed. We were told from the very beginning of this book that this was to be the revelation of Jesus Christ that this was going to be an uncovering or an unveiling. And yet when we finally come to the book itself, we find the book to be a closed book and a book sealed up, and not just with one seal, but with seven. And then the angelic challenge comes. Who is worthy to open the book? Who has sufficient dignity and standing, can anyone be found fit to take the book out of the hand of God and open it? And there is no response from all of the creation. There is no creature in heaven, on earth, or under the earth that is able to answer the challenge. 
and John mourns. This is partly good and partly bad. Good in the sense that it shows a right attitude toward the book itself. He has a zeal to know its contents, and that seems to be right and fitting. But on the other hand, he despairs because his gaze lingers too long upon the creatures, and he doesn't consider Christ, who is worthy and able. We were told from the very beginning of the book that this would be the revelation of Jesus Christ, that Christ would make these things open and known. So we find what we might expect to find when a man takes his gaze off of Jesus Christ and fixes the gaze upon the creature. There's despair. Now are these things ever going to be known? This brings us this morning to the first part of uh, verse 5. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seals thereof. I have, I have mentioned it before, but I'm going to attempt to justify it a bit more fully now, and then again, probably even more fully when we come to it uh, again. We must understand, if we're going to rightly uh, open this book, if we're going to begin to make some approach to its true meaning and significance, we need to understand John's representative character. John is not simply an observer in the vision. He is a player in it. Uh, maybe one of the easiest ways to explain this is uh, John is not a member of the audience, John is on the stage, and he plays a role in the unfolding of the book. As we have said, John's position is important. He stands at the door of the holy place. He's able to look inside the holy place, which seem to be the hidden and spiritual things of the church, spiritual realities indeed maybe even ultimately reality, but things that are concealed normally from the view of men. But he's also able to turn around and look at the, uh, uh, the courtyard, the things that are visible in the world concerning the church, as well as out onto the Roman world spread uh, all around him. This is where John stands, uh, but he has more to do there than simply observe but he becomes a participant at some critical junctures in the drama, if you will, that follows. And there is biblical precedent for this. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel. First, I want to simply show that, uh, that the prophets frequently would play a representative role in their prophecies. So they're not mere observers, not even mere 
proclaimers, but frequently they would pl they would play a representative and symbolic action in the prophecies themselves. This is very common in the prophecy of Ezekiel, and so um, I wanted to just read through uh, chapter four. I I doubt that very much comment will be necessary, but you'll see Ezekiel doing this in this very famous passage, beginning in the first verse. Thou also, son of man, take thee a tile and lay it before thee, and portray upon it the city, even Jerusalem, and lay siege against it, and build a fort against it, and cast a mount against it, set the camp also against it, and set battering rams against it round about. Moreover, take thou unto thee an iron pan, and set it for a wall of iron between thee and the city, and set thy face against it. And it shall be besieged, and thou shalt lay siege against it. This shall be a sign to the house of Israel. Lie thou also upon thy left side, and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. According to the number of the days that thou shalt lie upon it, thou shalt bear their iniquity. For I have laid upon thee the years of their iniquity, according to the number of the days, three hundred and ninety days. So shalt thou bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. And when thou hast accomplished them, lie again on thy right side. And thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Judah forty days. I have appointed thee each day for a year. Therefore thou shalt set thy face toward the siege of Jerusalem. And thine arm shall be uncovered. And thou shalt prophesy against it. And behold, I will lay bands upon thee. And thou shalt not turn thee from one side to another till thou hast ended the days of thy siege. Take thou also unto thee wheat, and barley, and beans, and lentils, and millet, and kitchens, and put them in one vessel, and make thee bread thereof, according to the number of the days that thou shalt lie upon thy side. Three hundred and ninety days shalt thou eat thereof. And thy meat which thou shalt eat shall be by weight, twenty shekels a day. From time to time shalt thou eat it. Thou shalt drink also water by measure, the sixth part of an hin. From time to time shalt thou drink. And thou shalt eat it as barley cakes, and thou shalt make it with dung that cometh out of man in their sight. And the Lord said, even thus shall the children of Israel eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles, whither I will drive them. And right there, don't you see so very clearly Ezekiel's representative and symbolic character. Now here he stands for all of the people of uh, Israel and the hardship that they will endure. Verse 14. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, my soul hath not been polluted, 
For from my youth up, even till now, have I not eaten of that which dieth of itself, or is torn in pieces. Neither came there abominable flesh into my mouth. Then said he unto me, Lo, I have given thee cows done for man's done, and thou shalt prepare thy bread therewith. Moreover he said unto me, Son of man, behold, I will break the staff of bread in Jerusalem, and they shall eat bread by weight and with care, and they shall drink water by measure and with astonishment that they may want bread and water, water and be astonished one with another and consume away for their iniquity. Ezekiel is commanded to do symbolical actions uh, that are in and of themselves prophecies and his actions are representative of what all Israelites will soon uh, be doing. This is just one example. We find it particularly great number of these sorts of representative actions in Ezekiel, but you can find it in the others. Some of you might be able to remember Jeremiah in the 27th of his book, how he uh, makes yokes and he puts them on himself, and then he sends them out to the surrounding nations with a message and a warning that... Um, the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar would soon be brought upon them. But so, so Jeremiah acts as a representative person, first dressing himself in these yokes and then sending them out to the surrounding nations. We find that this sort of representative uh, action of the prophets can even take place in their visions. And this brings us even nearer to what we find in the Apocalypse of John. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. This is <coughs> Isaiah's famous vision in which he sees Jehovah, even the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, high and lifted up in the train of his robe, filling the <coughs> temple. Isaiah immediately, although probably the most holy man in all of Israel, to be in the holy presence of God, he immediately identifies himself as a filthy wretch. And Jehovah cleanses his mouth with a coal from the altar. And this is where we pick up verse 7. You all remember Isaiah's lamentation, I am a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the Lord of hosts. Command goes from the, from the throne to one of these angelic beings to take a coal from the altar and to place it upon his lips. Verse 7, And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. <coughs> also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. Here Isaiah is, uh, acts as a representative person in this vision not just for himself, but for the long succession of prophets. This will become abundantly clear when the Lord speaks to the time frame of the commission, 
which will go long beyond uh, Isaiah's age and lifespan. So uh, attend here carefully. Verse 9. And he said, Go and tell this people, Hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and convert and be healed. Then said I, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate, and the Lord have removed men far away, and there be a great forsaking in the midst of the land. Well, this would go far beyond the fulfillment of this, and the fulfillment of the prophetic commission would continue until the desolation of the land which was more than 150 years from Isaiah's uh, uh, point in history at this time, long after he would be dead. And so here we see Isaiah standing not just for himself, but for the succession of the prophets that would come after him. And he, in the vision, is commissioned in the name of them all. We have a similar sort of thing in a little bit less detail. Ezekiel standing as a representative man in the, his famous vision of the Valley of the Dry Bones, Ezekiel 37. He sees, as it were, Israel, the army of Israel, laid waste, destroyed, and nothing now but bones. And not only that, dry bones, bones that have been out for a while and bleached white by the sun and made dry. Ezekiel is uh, called upon to <coughs> prophesy to these bones. And the bones begin to uh, come together again. It's a picture of uh, both physical, uh, or uh, both spiritual first, and then physical resurrection. Here, Ezekiel uh, bears a representative character for the long line of uh, gospel ministers that we'll call men out of spiritual death unto spiritual life and call them unto the happy aspect of the resurrection of the dead at the last days. But Ezekiel there performs a function not just for himself but as a representative man of all gospel ministers. This brings us back to John. I wanted to show you that this was no new principle nor uh, unusual thing when we say that John is not just an observer in this vision, but he is a participant in it. The question comes up, what is, uh, what is it that John represents? And we don't have to go too far for that, and we'll further justify this later, but John, if you will, represents the apostolical men in the history <coughs> You might even say the true line of apostolical ministers. Not that there will continue to be apostles, but those who continue in the apostolic doctrine and practice. John is representative of those. Now here we should say that when we talk about the apostolic succession, we don't mean it in the Roman Catholic sense. 
for uh, with Romanism, there is an apostolic succession in two ways. First, you should realize that they do consider the Pope in Rome to be an apostle. So there is yet a living apostle in the world, and that uh, that apostleship has been uh, passed down, as it were, hand to hand through ordination and succession from the first ages to this in their in their doctrine. And you also have an apostolical succession through the laying on of hands of ordination. This is how they claim that all of their ordinations are legitimate. The apostles ordained men, and those legitimately ordained men laid hands on other men, and so on. The reformers said that this is not the point of an apostolic succession at all. It's not, we're not primarily concerned with the heirs of the apostles through the laying on of hands. We are concerned with the heirs of the apostolic doctrine and practical ministry. Those are the true uh, heirs of the apostles. The heirs of the apostles, not through a strange hocus-pocus of the laying on of hands, but those who have believed their doctrine and preached their doctrine and practiced their doctrine while in the ministry. So when I talk about a true line of apostolical men, this is what I mean. Uh, John bears this representative character and so now we come back to the to the fuller image and we see that this elder informs uh, John of some things and then even gives him an exhortation not to weep. The information, and we'll look more at this in the in the coming weeks, but the information that's given basically amounts to this. That uh, Jesus Christ has prevailed, and I want you to notice that, that word, he has prevailed to break the seals and to open the book. It speaks of a certain victory won by Christ that uh, makes his worthiness to open the book readily evident and apparent. And since there is one, the man of God's right hand, who is able to take the book and open it, it is most unseasonable to be weeping. And thus the exhortation on the part of the elder uh, to John. And from this I wanted to derive just uh, one use, but a very useful use, I do think. Let the teachers of the church be open to instruction, even from their inferiors. John is instructed in this way, in the vision. Consider who John is, and even what he uh, represents. John is an apostle, one of the original twelve. More than that... John was one of the more intimate three. You remember that the Lord Jesus Christ, for some certain bits of private business, would draw uh, uh, Peter and the two sons of Zebedee apart. And so John, uh, James, and Peter were privy to some things that the other nine were not. And more than that, we learn in the Gospel of John that even among the three, John was a special intimate 
of Jesus Christ. Called uh, in the Gospel of John the beloved disciple, as if he were particularly dear to Jesus Christ, and even the one who uh, reclined upon the Lord's breast on that night in which he was betrayed. And now, John is the, is the last apostle in the world. So he has no peers in that regard. Not anymore. And he's an aged man in the church, which carries a special dignity with it all its own. Now consider, do you remember who the 24 elders represent? It's, they are representative men for all of the people of God. All of the people of God. And so this, if you will, common Christian comes to the aged and venerable apostle, instructs him in the facts of the matter, and corrects him. It's not a seasonable time to be weeping. The content of this uh, elder's teaching is worthy to be received, and it appears that John receives it. Uh, John does not uh, labor this point, but the elder calls upon him to behold Jesus Christ, and then the very next verse begins with, and I beheld. So John listened to what he had been uh, told. This is not the first time that we find like, something like this. If you, uh, if you were to consider at large, you could find many examples of, of people in uh, inferior place, station, calling, gifts, abilities, uh, instructing their superiors at various times to the profit of their superiors. If you just go through redemptive history, you can probably think of lots of examples. Think of uh, uh, distressed and yet wise Abigail throwing herself before an incensed David and how she delivers not only her husband's life, but David from wrongdoing in this. Uh, she is in every way in that episode David's uh, subordinate and inferior and yet uh, she instructs him to his prophet. But I wanted to look at just one example uh, in perhaps greater detail. Turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 18. of the Apostles, chapter 18, beginning in verse 24. And a certain Jew named Apollos, born at Alexandria, an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, came to Ephesus. This man was instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the spirit, he spake and taught diligently the things of the Lord, knowing only the baptism of John. We're not told in the scriptures very much about Apollos, but these things seem to be relatively clear. That he was a 
minister of the gospel and thus uh, a holder of office. Although it, during this transitional age, uh, it seems that the character of his office also might have changed as he went. But uh, be that as it may, we are told that he was a man of some extraordinary gifts. That he was a learned man in the scriptures and that God had also gifted him with a great ability to speak. Paul seems to recognize this. We find uh, that um, Paul does not seem to be uh, slow of speech and yet he recognizes that in this way Apollos had even received much greater gifts than he himself had received. So in uh, many ways, we might consider Apollos to be a superior in office, in gifts and graces. Verse 26. And he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom, when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly. And when he was disposed to pass into Achaia, the brethren wrote, exhorting the disciples to receive him, who, when he was come, helped them much, which had believed through grace. For he mightily convinced the Jews, and that publicly, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was Christ. A uh, couple of things to note here. This uh, Apollos, according to the light that he had at the time, was preaching uh, the way of the Lord. But it seems that he had only been brought up in knowledge as far as uh, John could take them at that time. Aquila and his wife uh, Priscilla knew the way of the Lord more exactly, here described as more perfectly. And they pull this man, so eminent in office, gifts, graces, and abilities, they pull him aside and explain to him the way of God more perfectly. God in his providence had seen to it that Aquila and Priscilla uh, knew more, and here they take the opportunity to explain these things to him. And it appears to be that the connection is, uh, a logical connection is not made explicit here. But it seems that it was profitable to Apollos' ministry. It seems after that, in uh, verses 27 and 28, that he became even more powerful in convicting and convincing the Jews from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. I do want to point out here that uh, Aquila very, very well may have been uh, Apollos' equal in office. But I want to note, to note here that Aquila and Priscilla did this action conjointly. The verb is plural. They took him unto them, and they expounded unto him. So this minister and his wife, in this informal context, explained to Apollos uh, more perfectly the way of God. They brought him further along in his knowledge, and it does appear from the text that Apollos took the instruction. He profited by it and became thus more powerful in his ministry. I wanted to make just a, a couple of applications, but perhaps before we do, we should recognize that in some ways this is not the norm. Uh, generally speaking, 
superiors instruct their inferiors because, in general, they are, if things have worked rightly, they are the superiors because, in general, they have greater knowledge, experience, gifts, and graces. So it's normal for superiors to be instructing their inferiors. Uh, for those of you that have been parents, the first time you held that baby in your arms, you realized, this little person doesn't know anything. And I don't have to be much of a person at all. I just have so much more in the way of knowledge, wisdom, experience, gifts, and graces. And so it would be normal for the parent to be instructing the child. However, there are no human superiors that are omniscient. And so there are times when inferiors in God's providence are called upon to give some manner of instruction, perhaps even admonition and exhortation to their superiors. And superiors, when called upon in God's providence, are to learn from their inferiors and even to be instructed by them. And so first, uh, an exhortation to the officers of the church and really to all in authority and principle. Our ears must remain open to instruction and correction. You remember Paul's exhortation to young Timothy was that the church should always see him profiting, that he's growing in grace and knowledge. So Timothy's job was not to convince the people of God that he was somehow omniscient and infallible, but rather he was going to edify the people of God as they saw him ever growing. He was somebody to be imitated in that way. We see our Pastor Timothy growing in grace and knowledge. We see him profiting in the Lord. And so we're following after. And we're uh, imitating him as he uh, learns more and more to imitate Jesus Christ. But this is, uh, this calls us to a very serious spiritual discipline of humility. And the instruction is true, and even a correction or admonition comes, and it is just and right. We must humble our souls and receive it. This is good both for us, and ultimately it will make us better overseers of, uh, of Christ's flock. In such situations... You can either be proud or you can become a better overseer, but you can't have both. And so you must choose what you'll have. So let us humble ourselves and receive just instruction. This seemed, I was quite amazed when I came upon this, um, this passage at this season in the life of our church. Because as you well know... Um, we are undertaking studies with respect to form of government. And the session is called upon every member of the church to participate in these studies uh, with uh, active minds, active discipleship. And we have said throughout that many minds uh, that differ in uh, Learning, experience, gifts, and graces. The many minds working on these things will produce a fuller study. And we've also said how 
foolish it would be to limit these studies to just what three minds can do. Be they ever so able and capable, we are some 50 minds strong. Why would we limit uh, the possible fruit of a study like this to just three minds? And to just give you uh, um, an example of how this can work, say a certain theological principle or premise comes forward, the elders look at it and we say we can't see uh, any objection to it. It seems to be well founded in the scripture. But anyone of uh, Jesus Christ's priest kings can say, but, uh, uh, but brethren, I, it seems to me that we should also consider this other passage. Might it have a bearing upon it and alter the proposition or maybe totally overturn it? And the elders just never thought of that particular text. It had never occurred to them. And thus the studies are made fuller, richer, and there's also built-in corrections against error when all are participating. This also seems fitting for a, uh, a communion Sunday in a particular sort of way. We are reminded in the Lord's Supper that we are one body, one bread, one loaf, one lump, and that we need each other. You remember the Apostle Paul said that the eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of thee, nor the hand to the eye, I have no need of thee. We are all necessary. And Paul said that even those that are the most inferior of the inferior, what he characterizes as unseemly parts, upon those we are to put a more abundant honor, recognizing that all the parts and the operation of all the gifts and the graces is necessary for the fullness of body life, or to have a complete body. We've also had this very recently in a different set of images. Do you remember the four living creatures? In Ezekiel, the angelic cherubs, each one is complete in and of himself. Each one has all four faces. But when the same image is used to represent the ministers of the uh, the gospel in Revelation chapter 4, each minister only has one face. And it's only when you bring them all together that there is fullness. If I might just speak one further word to try to highlight how important this is in our day and age and for us as a particular body. The culture has become egalitarian. They used to call them levelers. No difference between husband and wife. No difference between pastor and church member. No difference between king and subject. We level. No more in the way of office. This certainly is not a biblical idea, but our culture runs very quickly in that direction. But in reform circles, there's been the authoritarian overreaction. I am the superior. I teach you. You are the inferior. You receive instruction and you simply do what I tell you to do. Uh, this is not the biblical mean either. In uh, most of John's activities, he would have been properly considered the superior. Most of the teaching, particularly as John became an old man, probably for the most part went one way. Can you imagine being in John's presence? I can't imagine that I would have said too much. 
maybe ask some questions, try to get him to talk, and then just sit and uh, listen. But we see here in the vision that even as John entered into an unseasonable despair and weeping, he is both taught and corrected by one of the common people of God for John's own edification. And this is also something that's necessary to make the officers of the church better officers. So let us neither go uh, in egalitarianism nor the uh, current reformed overreaction going in the direction of authoritarianism, but let us hold fast to the biblical mean and this all-important balance. Let us pray together.